0: listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com.
1: I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute and imagine with me. Close your eyes and I want you to imagine What might it be like if all the sin in all the world for all of time were to converge in the same place? What might it look like if all the sin in all the world for all of time were to converge in the same place? What might it look like? Well, today we're going to get an idea of what it might look like, and it doesn't actually even require very much of an imagination, although your imagination brought to the table will help you understand even more. We're going to understand as we look at God's Word together, beginning in 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. The inner sanctuary he prepared, Solomon, in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This is an account of King Solomon building the temple of Almighty God. They had had a tabernacle before this, but now it's time for them to have a more permanent worship center. The tabernacle was the portable worship center that they took with them as they traveled throughout the wilderness and throughout the land. That's what the Israelites had. But then they had come to the point where they were going to build a temple. And God raised up Solomon to build that temple. And here, the account is being given of a place called the Holy of Holies, the innermost place, the inner sanctuary, There was a holy place and then there was a most holy place. And the holy place was the place in the temple three times the length of what we're going to look at in great detail here today, even though it's not exhaustive, of the most holy place, the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary, the innermost sanctuary. And so there are lessons to be given, lessons to be learned here as we look at the construction of the temple, as we look at the character, the nature of God in terms of What is it that God is trying to communicate to his people? What is it that God is trying to communicate to we, his people, today? There are certain things in the Bible that are timeless. There are certain things in the Bible that have had their time, been there, done that, no longer to be applied, no longer applicable, but there are other things about the nature and the character of God that are timeless and are relevant and pertinent to us today. So don't make the mistake of thinking that because this is Old Testament, it doesn't mean much for you and me living in New Testament times. So here's what was taking place. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house, reference to the temple, to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. How many of us are familiar with Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones. For many of us, that is the fullest understanding that we have of the Ark of the Covenant. But that comes from the whole idea of the Ark of the Covenant comes from the biblical account, what we're reading here. And in that innermost place, in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented, it symbolized the very presence of God among his people. And so this is what was there in the middle of that Holy of Holies, that innermost sanctuary, that innermost part. And its size was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, a cube. It was a cube. And the equivalent of 20 cubits is 30 feet. So you have to imagine a 30 foot wide by 30 foot long by 30 foot high inner room. That was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, the place that we're referring to here. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. It represented the presence of God. In the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant was there. In the tabernacle, The Ark of the Covenant was there. In Herod's temple, which is the one that is referenced when we get to our portion later today, by the time we get to Herod's temple, we see or we understand based on history that the Ark of the Covenant was not there. The Ark of the Covenant was not there during Jesus' day in Herod's temple because it had been taken captive during the Babylonian captivity. And if you want to read about what happened before the Babylonian captivity, and if you want to read about what happened after the Babylonian captivity, you read the books written by the weeping prophet Jeremiah. And that's in the book that bears his name, the book of Jeremiah. And then the book of lamentations or tears or remorsefulness that was also written by the prophet Jeremiah. He was the weeping prophet on purpose because he preached and he warned the people to repent for 70 years. 70 years preaching and teaching and warning. There were other prophets on top of Jeremiah who warned God's people to repent. And if we look at history, here's what happened the people didn't repent, they were taken into captivity, men, women, boys, and girls. God's people taken into captivity, and with it, the Ark of the Covenant. And so in Herod's day, in Jesus' day, any and every time the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, that innermost place, that inner sanctuary, he would be reminded, and the people would be reminded too, that they no longer had the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol that most represented the presence, the power, the blessing of God was no longer with God's people. So there's a bitter sweetness during Jesus' day. Anytime and every time, the high priest would go into that innermost part, that holy of holies, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Once a year, the high priest who was chosen would go and offer sacrifices in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was in Solomon's day, where it was not in Jesus' day, that person, that high priest, would offer sacrifices in the Holy of Holies as a reminder of the need to be brought into at-one-ment with God. That's a great way to remember the word atonement. What does the word atonement mean? The word means to be brought into atonement, unity with Almighty God. That's why it's called the day of atonement or atonement, which even to this day, the Jewish people still celebrate on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The only thing is that now there's not even a temple for the Jewish people to offer sacrifices in. At least there was a temple during Jesus' day. But what we see throughout history is that during the tabernacle and during Solomon's day when he built the temple, the first temple that we're reading about here, the Ark of the Covenant was present, which represented the presence and the blessing of God. The people rebelled against God, were no longer red hot for God, rebuffed God's repeated attempts through his messengers to repent and to turn back to God. And so God used one of the many instruments at his disposal to get the attention of his people, to discipline them. And he sent a foreign army to come against his people and take them into captivity. And with that went the Ark of the Covenant. And so by the time we see the temple rebuilt, this is why the people who were around and saw the first Temple Solomon's temple, when they saw the second temple rebuilt by Herod, they were in tears because Herod's temple paled in comparison to the temple of Solomon. So there was a bittersweetness. And so even today, among the Jewish people, there's a bittersweetness because guess what they don't have? They don't even have a temple of any kind, let alone an Ark of the Covenant, during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So with the passage of time, we're reminded that one of the things that God can do, one of the things that God has done, and one of the things that God can continually do, even in this day, is withdraw his presence and his blessing and his goodness that we would otherwise be experiencing in very much more tangible, practical, visible, experiential ways for no other reason than our lack of interest in God himself. See, anytime anybody wants nothing to do with God, eventually, if you push that envelope long enough, God will give you what you're asking for. Some people get that in the eternal scheme of things. They want nothing to do with God during the whole course of their life, and then God grants them what they've wanted for their whole lives for a whole eternity. And so what we see here from Solomon's temple and even before that the tabernacle and then Herod's temple and then the fact that there is no more temple is the withdrawal of God's presence, the withdrawal of God's blessing that hopefully results in God's people having a burning hunger for the presence and the power of God that they are currently not experiencing. And so we have to understand today in the United States of America where there are so many who claim to be following God, claim to be Christ followers. The important thing about being a Christ follower is not even so much of that first part, which is the given, the Christ part, but to make sure you're actually doing that second part, which is following. Because if we're not following the Christ that we say we're following, we're no longer living sacrifices as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, but we end up becoming walking contradictions. And so one of the unchanging things about the nature and the character of God is that he has, he has many ways at his disposal to get the attention of his people. And one of the fundamental things that God repeatedly does, I know he's done it in my life, I know he's done it in yours. He will withdraw the experience of his presence and blessing until and unless I'm willing to be candid with him, honest with him, courageous with him about my own sin. Whenever we allow and tolerate sin to go on in our own lives, there is a price to be paid. And sometimes that price is overt and it's obvious and it's something that you cannot mistake and at other times it's overt and it's obvious, but because we allow ourselves to become distracted, by lesser things, we simply don't recognize that we've settled for hamburger when God is offering USDA prime choice fillet mignon. And so one of the things that God allows to happen in our lives is the withdrawal of His presence as a means of disciplining us for sin, being lukewarm toward God, to do what? To bring us back to our senses to realize that there really is no life, no enjoyment, no freedom, no joy, no satisfaction found in anything or anyone else other than God. So the temple was one of the clearest object lessons of God reminding his people of the importance of his presence. And what would happen with the object lesson of the tabernacle or the object lesson of the temple is that was a progression. There was a progression that just in the architecture itself reminded people about the holiness of God, the grace of God, the mercy, and the goodness of God. There was the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and as you went closer, there was a curtain, and then the holy place where the priests would minister. And then all of the priests could minister there. And then if you continued to move forward, traveling from east to west, because in the Bible, interestingly enough, if you read in Genesis chapter 11, it says, as men traveled eastward, oftentimes when you see in the Bible, when somebody's saying they went east, they traveled east, it's bad news. It means there's foreshadowing there. There's something not good on the horizon. And that's what we see in the Tower of Babel account. As people traveled eastward, uh-oh, red flag. Something not good is on the horizon. To go eastward is symbolically in the Bible, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes associated with walking away from God. So it's interesting that the way the temple was set up is that the entryway, even though you could come in through the southern mount up to the temple, when you finally made your way into the temple area, you came from east to west. You went from east to west, and the first thing that you would hit after the court of the Gentiles is you would hit the holy place where the priests would offer sacrifices. There would be a curtain, then you go into the holy place, and then there would be another curtain, and that was the no-no place. Nobody went into that inner place, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, except the high priest, on the day of atonement, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, to go into the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, where in Solomon's day, the Ark of the Covenant was there. In Jesus' day, it wasn't there. And the high priest would perform the sacrifice on the day of atonement, the day of atonement, to remind the people that their sin was real, their God was real, and that God loved them so much that he wanted them to be united with him. And so even in the structure architecturally of the temple, there was a reminder that the closer and closer you get to God, you cannot help but be reminded of his holiness, the exclusivity associated with drawing nearer to God, all right? And so that is what's conveyed in the structure, the architectural layout Beautiful, that even the story of redemption, even the reality of sin and the mercy of God and the goodness of God and the love of God and the holiness of God are made clearer through the way the temple mount was structured. It's amazing. So the next time somebody tells you, they they want to talk about Jesus didn't judge, see how ridiculous that statement is? They want to talk about, we just need to love and we need to be accepting of everybody. Remember that God is love and God is holy. And he does require us to clean up our act before we can sit down at the table. But the beautiful thing about God is that though he requires us to clean up our act, he says, I will clean up your act for you. Because if you could clean up your act, if I could clean up my act, if there was something that we could do on our own, there would be no need for the rest of this stuff that we're now going to look at. The beauty of God is that he sees our sin, he wants at one with us, he wants relationship with us, and because of his holiness, something has to be done because of our sin, And he just decided to do what we couldn't do for ourselves and do it himself by taking care of all of it. And so here in 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 19, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, the most holy place, he, Solomon, prepared in the innermost part of the house, referring to the temple, to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord, what we've been talking about. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits. That's 30 feet, 30 feet long. 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Anybody who knows anything about construction or wood knows that when you use cedar, you do it on purpose because it's resistant to mold, it's resistant to mildew, it's resistant to insects, right? So you use cedar. I see some of you nodding your head. You use cedar because you want there to be longevity. So underneath the things that were overlaid with real gold was cedar in some instances, and in other instances, as we're going to see, olive wood, another wood that was especially good for constructing this type of thing. Verse 21, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold and He drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary. In other words, to remind, do not cross, all right? More serious than a police line. In front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all of the house was finished also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim or two angels of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. That's 15 feet high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub at seven and a half feet and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. So we have 15 foot wide, physical models, representations of a cherub, and 15 feet high. Each one of these is 15 feet. There are two of them. In the inner sanctuary, verse 23, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. And again, it's repeated. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits and so was that of the other cherub. So here, It's not speaking symbolically, it's not speaking figuratively. There really were two massive, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high representations of angels who are there to represent and reflect and to guard and to protect the glory, the holiness of God, okay? Here is where it's important for us to remember. When you see tremendous detail being given in the Bible, it probably means that the literal sense makes sense. So everything else is nonsense. If the literal sense makes sense, everything else is nonsense, and what the writer of Scripture here is helping the reader in their day and in our day understand that this really happened. This really took place. All right, that's what's being presented. Verse 27, he, Solomon, put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. That's in the holy place, the most holy place. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And the implication here is that everything is covered, the presence and the glory of God, everything that is being conveyed here is the holiness of God. Remember, love is one of the important things to remember about God. God is love. It's also important to remember the most significant attribute from which all the other attributes of God are understood is a four-letter word that is not appreciated by many today, H-O-L-Y. It's a beautiful word. The holiness of God, it's what is being conveyed here in this holy of holies. Verse 28, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures and cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer room. So this is one of the accounts of the holy of holies, the innermost place, given in the Old Testament. Another account that I want you to look at is 2 Chronicles chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, because we're, we'll begin to understand that some of this is repeated, some of, it, some of it is explained in greater detail, because there seems to be something that God wants his people to understand and appreciate, and it is the unchanging, untouchable, holy nature of God. You might believe, I might believe a lot of things about God, but one of the things that God wants us to believe about God is that he is holy. And that's why there is a object lesson, the progression, if we were living in New Testament times and even Old Testament times before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, is that as we draw closer to God, we are reminded of his holiness. And the closer we get, to God, or the closer we want to get to God, the greater becomes our awareness of the need for at-one-ment, for atonement, for the removal of our sin. Because haven't you noticed that God is holy and we're not? And yet the whole interest of God behind at one behind wanting to have fellowship with us is that He recognizes your sin and mine. He did something about your sin and mine. Something had to happen with your sin and mine in order for us who are sinners, in order for us who are sinners to enjoy fellowship with Almighty God. Now, look with me here at 2 Chronicles chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. He, Solomon, made the most holy place. This is the same place, that 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot cube, the holy place, the holy of holies, its length corresponding to the breadth of the house. It was 20 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of gold for the nails. Now, wait a second here. If you're not careful, you'll just zip by. You will just zoom by some key, important, significant parts of scripture. You just need to slow down for a little bit here. Slow down, professor. We need to slow down and and let this sink into our understanding. 600 shekels of gold, the nails alone were two-fifths of an ounce of gold. I'll take a fistful of those nails These days, when gold is worth so much money nowadays, and you might not be interested in gold now, but you will be when hyperinflation hits the earth if you're around to see it. When, as the Bible says, a loaf of bread will cost a day's wages. That's a hyperinflationary situation coming upon the earth. It's prophesied about in scripture. It's coming. The only question is whether or not you'll be here or I'll be here to experience it. But when that day comes on the earth, there will be people who wish they had some precious metals. They wish they had precious metals, some gold and silver, because that's what people will be running to when our paper currency is good for use in an outhouse. I'm thinking about that at a high level right now, the outhouse, because there was one at the cabin I was in earlier this week. And that's as far as I'll go with the illustration of an outhouse, but that's about what your paper money will be worth one day when hyperinflation comes upon the earth. So two-fifths of an ounce was a nail, 600 shekels of gold, 23 tons, 45,000 pounds of gold. 45,000 pounds of gold were used right here in the building of the temple. That might seem a little exorbitant. Gold is something that we all kind of secretly covet. Now, don't tell me as you're hearing me say these words that part of you didn't say, I'll take one forty-fifth of what Solomon used in that temple, please. I'd love a little bit of that. And see, you're being honest. You're just nodding your head. Of course we would. It took Solomon and the people, not one or two or three or four or five or six, but seven years to finish building this temple all the artistry all the craftsmanship that it would take not only to overlay everything with this gold leaf 45,000 pounds worth but to weave tapestries to create figurines to build the structure seven years that's a lot of time and that temple was a lot smaller than where we gather in our 150,000-square-foot building that we're in part of right now here in Seven Valleys. Seven years. It took us a lot less time to build this church. If we look at the whole length of the construction process, seven years. Now, before we ooh and we ah and we say, wow, what dedication Solomon had, what commitment he had, if you keep reading further, you will see that Solomon took 13 years to build his own palace. Seven years versus 13. And so everything has its perspective. Everything has its context. See, it's very possible for us to do what seems to be amazing, unbelievable, awe-inspiring things for God. The question, however, is what are you also doing for yourself? Solomon spent almost twice as much time building his own temple as he did building God's temple. And that's why King Saul is recognized as the king who had no heart for God. King Solomon is recognized as the king who had half a heart for God because the three G's did him in. Gold, glory, and girls. The guy had an insatiable sexual appetite. The three things that God told him not to do, Solomon did. Even though he built the temple, he also built his own sanctuary. And it took almost twice as long. And then the third king, the one who's known as the man after God's heart, was David. And even though David committed adultery and was a murderer, committed premeditated murder, The reason why he is called a man after God's heart is because when God called him on the carpet through the prophet Nathan, David immediately said, you're right. One of the key characteristics of a heart for God is you agree with God about the truth. And when God came up through the prophet Nathan and delivered the truth to David, David said, you're right, I'm wrong, I agree with you. And we see that nature, that characteristic trait in David again and again, where although he was imperfect and nobody who ever walked the face of the earth was perfect, no one ever will be perfect except Jesus Christ is the only one who was perfect, the only one who is perfect. David demonstrated what it was to be a man after God's own heart. And so here in verse eight, he made the most holy place, its length corresponding to the breadth of the house has 20 cubits, and its breadth has 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of gold for the nails was 50 shekels, which is two-fifths of an ounce. And he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim of wood. We've read about these already in First Kings. And overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim together extended 20 cubits, one wing of the one of five cubits touched the wall of the house and the other wing of five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub. And on this cherub, one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and the other wing, also of five cubits, joined to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim, these representations of angels, extended 20 cubits. The cherubim stood on their feet facing the nave, or facing the holy place. So when the high priest would come in through that curtain into the most holy place, These cherubs, these cherubim would be facing him. That's what he would see. And in Solomon's day, he would be instantaneously reminded through the Ark of the Covenant of the holiness of God, the goodness of God, through both the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that were there. Now today... The only thing that remains, this is how sorrowful and how sad it is, the only thing that remains in that area is the Western Wall in Israel, the Western Wall. And if you've been there, you know that you can have access to the Western Wall. Many devout Jews are there, and they're offering their prayers. They're wearing their garb, and they offer their prayers, and they chant, and they will often write down a prayer request, and they will... Write it on a little piece of paper, slip it into a crevice in the Western Wall, and leave whatever it is that they're praying to God about in that wall. When I was there, there was an Orthodox Jew who was there dressed in his garb, and he came up to me. This was in 1996, three years before the fulfillment of the prayer that he prayed for me. comes up to me and says, hello. I said, yes, Hello. He engaged in some kind of small talk to me, but very quickly got right down to business. Are you married? He asked me, looking at my left hand. No, I'm not. Well, let's pray. You need a wife. Let's pray. He puts his hand on me. Oh, God, give this man a wife. Give him a beautiful, good wife and give it to him quick. Takes his hand off of me, leaves. And three years later, that man's prayer was fulfilled with the arrival of Janet, the love of my life, the fulfillment of that prayer. All had its roots way back there at the Western Wall, now known as also the Wailing Wall, because that's where the Jews will assemble, not only offer prayer requests, but pray for the reconstruction of the temple and the arrival of the Messiah that most of them, most of them don't yet recognize as being Jesus, the anointed and the appointed, the chosen one spoken of in the scriptures. So they'll go to the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall and they will wail. And if you take a step back from the Wailing Wall, from the Western Wall, you can take a look at another gold leaf covered structure that stands where the former temples stood. First Solomon's temple, then Herod's temple. Today, that spot is covered by the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock of the rock. And so if you go to Israel today and you know anything about the Bible, you know anything about the presence and the power and the glory of God and the manifestations of God, to be there today and to look at the dome of the rock, if you know your Bible, you know that it pales in comparison, didn't use anywhere near 45,000 pounds of gold, nowhere near 23,000 Tons of gold in the gold leaf on the dome in the building called the Dome of the Rock. So there's reason to wail. There's reason to mourn. And the interesting thing is that today, because there's no temple there, is that Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple before it happened when he and his disciples were walking by the temple one day. And the disciples were marveling, saying, wow, look at this magnificent structure. Look at how beautiful this is. And it paled in comparison to the temple in Solomon's day, but Jesus, saying the right word at the right time, seized upon their mesmerization and said, oh, you like these rocks? You like these stones? Not one of them is going to remain on another. Not one of them. And in 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Herod's temple, Jesus' prophecy came to fulfillment very literally. Because what happened is the Romans came in and they burnt it down and they ransacked it and they took the gold that melted in the intensely high heat, the crucible of fire that they had created, that gold that was used in the temple that we're reading about here, melted and went into the crevices, the cracks of the rocks, and the Romans feverish for money. Don't criticize them so much because you might have dug for some of it too. removed one stone from another in a frantic attempt to dig down and get as much gold for themselves as possible. And in their bloodthirsty hunger for the gold, they fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus when he said, not one of these stones will be left on another. Look with me at verse 12, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And of this cherub, one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and the other wing also of five cubits was joined to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim extended 20 cubits. The cherubim stood on their feet facing the nave, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it very important verse of scripture to understand. And he worked, he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and the linen, and he worked cherubim on it. There was a veil or a curtain before you entered as a priest into the holy place. And then there was another one if you were the high priest, another veil, another curtain between the holy place and the most holy holy place. And this is the veil, this is the curtain that is being referenced here in Second Chronicles chapter 3 verse 14. He made the veil or the curtain of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen and he worked cherubim in it. So as you drew nearer to the holy of holies that represented the dwelling place of God, which was completely inappropriate to have had the Ark of the Covenant in Jesus' day because Jesus was the very presence of God. God had orchestrated it so that the Ark of the Covenant was not there during Jesus' day. wouldn't have been necessary because the actual presence of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God was out there pressing the flesh, perfect and flawless as he was among the people. So this understanding becomes especially important when we get to Hebrews chapter 9. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant, verse 1, had regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness. We've been looking at that in 1 Kings and Second Chronicles, for a tent was prepared, referencing first the tabernacle, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. See, we've been talking about this having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. We don't have time to go into that today, but that's what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the Holy of Holies, the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Very important to understand that unintentional sin is a sin nonetheless. It must be atoned for in order for you to have at one mint to be at one mint with God. There are many people who are sincere and yet they are sincerely sinning, and sincerely wrong. Unintentional sin is still sin, and it must be atoned for. If you want to get a deeper understanding of the Old Testament sacrifices, the wave offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the fellowship offering, read the first five chapters of the book, named after the tribe of Levi, in particular, the Levites, the book of Leviticus. In those first five chapters, you'll get a deeper understanding of the sacrifices, animal and grain and drink, that are laid out there that all point to the ultimate sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that was and is fulfilled in Jesus as he hung on the cross. Verse 8, Hebrews 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation or the time of fulfillment. But... For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, referencing the Old Testament sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions or sins committed under the first covenant. So this is clearly pointing to Jesus, helping us understand that all of the Old Testament sacrifices, the design of every single one of the Old Testament sacrifices was to point to the once for all, one of a kind, ultimate and final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's all pointing toward Jesus. And when we get to the book of Luke in chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and we see that he opened up their eyes, that they could see all of the things in the Old Testament that pointed to him, we have to understand that the words of Jesus are not just the red words that we find in the New Testament today. Those are not just the words of Jesus. They didn't have those words in their Bible In Jesus' day, they had the Old Testament. And Jesus began with the prophets and went through the law of Moses and pointed the people, the two disciples, Cleopas and another, on the road to Emmaus. He helped them understand how everything in the Old Testament pointed to him. All of the Bible points to Jesus. All of it culminates, and that's why I ask this question. This is why I wanted you to try and imagine, and this is why I want you to try and imagine it again. What would it be like if all the sin in all the world for all of time converged in the same place? What would that look like if all the sin in all the world for all of time converged in the same place? Well, here it is. If we look at our Father's Word in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying... Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Pilate proclaimed Jesus as being innocent. The criminal on the cross, one of two, is proclaiming Jesus as being innocent. And we will see that the centurion ends up proclaiming Jesus as innocent. So he says, the criminal says... And indeed, we are justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What might it have looked like for all the sin and all the world for all of time to converge in one place? We don't have to wonder what it might look like. This is what it looked like. From about noon until three o'clock, the whole region was covered with a thick darkness where the sun itself was veiled, but the Son of God shone. Where all the sin in all the world, for all of time, converged and merged, not just in one location, but upon one person. And his name was, and his name is, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was, and is, and is to come, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is what it looked like when all the sin in all the world, for all of time, merged together, converged in an unholy yet holy convocation where your sin and my sin accepted the invitation to God's party and came together and was nailed on a cross So that you and I, so that we could be brought into at-one-ment through the atoning blood, the atonement of Jesus Christ. The punishment that brought us peace was at that moment upon his shoulders. That is what it looked like when all the sin in all the world for all of time came together not only at a particular place but upon a particular person, Jesus. The weight of all the world's sin was hanging on his shoulders, your sin and mine. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus didn't judge, that God accepts us as we are. No, he does not. He accepts us only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ shed on a cross. And we must remember that the next time we begin to have a flippant, casual attitude about our sin, which is often much more intentional than unintentional, that it was your sin and mine joining with the sin of the world in an unholy holy convocation so that you and I so that we could be brought into a relationship with God that we wouldn't have a prayer's chance of experiencing unless Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. Verse 45 while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple the veil Of the temple, the one that we've been reading about, veil and curtain of the temple. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, after the tearing of the curtain, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this was an innocent man. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, all the sin of all the world for all time coming together, they returned home beating their breasts. People actually debate today whether or not that darkness was around the whole world or just in that location, and they missed the point entirely. Going off on rabbit trails, the point was, without the cross and without the sinless willingness of Jesus, who knew no sin, to voluntarily offer himself up to put himself in harm's way for we who know sin we would not have that one with God. We would not be brought into union and communion with him. Verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The veil of the temple that was torn into is that curtain that was there between the holy place and the most holy place. That when Jesus hung in real time on a real cross, shed real blood for real sin. The reason why that veil, that curtain was torn in two is because God was offering real atonement, real sacrifice, a real peace treaty, a real extension of his hand for you and for me to reach out and grasp in response to his holy, one-of-a-kind, unique extension of love and forgiveness without compromising his holiness. And it was at that moment where the holiness of God, the exclusivity of a relationship with God was now Opened on a global basis where now the holiness of God, the presence of God, peace with God, at one minute with God, forgiveness of sin, a loving, vibrant, real relationship with Almighty God went to a whole new level offered to sinners just like you and me. Regardless of your skin color, regardless of your race, regardless of your sex, regardless of your sin, regardless of your financial status, regardless of your age, the ground is level at the foot of that cross. At atonement. Atonement is an offer that God almighty decisively offered, gave to you and to me. When all of the sin in all of the world for all of time, including yours, including mine, was laid on Jesus so that we could be brought into a relationship with God the Father that would otherwise be impossible.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.